happy Sunday and happy Easter to you. I hope you're doing well. Um, as Brian mentioned, we're just going to do a quick sidestep out of the order of one story to honor the day of Easter, so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, many years ago, Bonnie and I had the great uh, opportunity and privilege to travel to Israel and spend 10 days there. I am, I've always been fascinated with the ancient world, and to see that intersect with our faith was just uh, something that was captivating for both of us. Now, as you would guess, it has gotten pretty commercial over there, and the crafty ones have found every which way to make a buck, so you got to kind of put up with that along the way. Having said that, uh, all during the week, it was just filled with authentic moments of real great inspiration. And it's not that the land there is any holier. I know they call it the Holy Land, uh, but the, the truth is the, the, the dirt and stone really carry no inherent meaning. Uh, you don't get holier by osmosis. Um, I mean, it might be, uh, getting baptized in the Jordan River might be a great memory to make, but it's really no more special in God's sight than being baptized in your neighbor's pool. Um, in other words, just walking the streets of Jerusalem doesn't cause holiness to creep up through your feet and then into your being. It's, it's a place. It's dirt and stone. It's a place. It's a wildly historical place, unlike any other on earth, but it is a place nonetheless. Um, for some, that might be disappointing. For some, that might even be offensive to, to even say things like that. But I'm going to show you why today that the fact that Jerusalem is not holy is the best news for us that you could possibly imagine. So stay with me for just a moment. On that trip, there was a lot of bus travel in between the scheduled stops. And most of it, to be honest, was pretty boring. But it might have been on the drive between the Galilee and Jerusalem that I saw it. Um, we drove by it unannounced, and most people missed it. It was an ancient grave. It was a tomb that was dug into the side of a hill, not very far off the side of the road. Um, right at the mouth of that tomb, there was this giant round stone. It was cut like a, a disc, not round like a ball, but like a giant wheel, and it sat inside a long groove that was cut into the rock beneath it. Uh, once the body, after a funeral, is put into this tomb, they roll this giant rock disc down that groove and it drops into a recessed slot to cover the mouth of the tomb. It's, it's permanent. Once it gets put in there, it's done. The average stone is about five feet in diameter and over a foot thick. So the best estimates guess that these stones weigh about 3,000 pounds. You can't just roll the stone away. If for some reason, the stone has to be rolled away in some uh, time in the future. It takes a team of horses to pull that out of its recessed resting place there. Um, and here I was just looking at this typical ancient tomb right here in front of me. In a moment like that, the fairy tale romanticized story of the resurrection of Jesus becomes less fairy tale and totally historical. Um, I mean, you've seen the, the paintings and the pictures of Jesus. Uh, maybe you're a Sunday school kid and you saw it on flannel graphs. Anybody see it on flannel graphs when you were growing up? Um, we've all seen the, all the Jesus movies over the years where all the characters have British accents for some reason, but that's not the point. It's not the point. Although the story of Jesus has kind of, um, his life, death, and resurrection has kind, kind of come to this place of once upon a time there was a man named Jesus. The point is that this right before us showed us the historical norm 
of a tomb exactly like what the Bible describes at Easter. It was a reminder for me, and for the next few minutes, I want it to be a reminder for all of us that there's nothing religious about Easter. Like, not at all. Not at all. The story of Easter is not a religious story. It's a story of what happened at a real location at a real time in history. So on Easter Sunday, we don't celebrate a teacher or a teaching. We don't celebrate a religion or a philosophy or a way of life. We celebrate an event that actually happened, which means Easter is way better than religion. It goes, it goes beyond religion. There's nothing religious about it. All right, maybe you learned this in college or somewhere along the way. Religion, at least most religions, grew up in the gap between what was explainable and what was undeniable. For instance, in the ancient world, something would happen. Um, seasons would change and crops would grow and there were locusts, but sometimes there wasn't. And those were undeniable, but yet there was no explanation in place for it yet. Battles were fought and epic weather events took place and they were undeniable, but there was really no explanation in place for them at the time. So religion grows up in this gap between what was explainable and what was undeniable. Religion kind of grew to explain the unexplainable. Then over time, science grows, science grows. And in the growing understanding of science, it began to explain a lot of what happened right in front of people, but previously it had no explanation. Science provided a lot of that. Matter of fact, science began systematically dismantling much of ancient religion's beliefs. For example, someone would say, okay, so that lightning in the sky is not Zeus displaying his anger? Well, no, that has to do with water particles and updrafts and electricity and collisions of weather systems. So not Zeus? Nope, that's just weather. That's just weather. You mean that thunder is not the god Baal shouting in an unknown language? No, no, that's just weather too. Okay, well, what about the, the angry seas and giant waves? That's still Poseidon, right? No, no, there's a storm way out at sea that's creating waves that travel all the way from there to here. Not Poseidon? Nope, not Poseidon. Then we discovered germs and how germs work. Because previously it was like, Susie's really sick, uh, it's got to be a curse, right? Don't we have to call the witch doctor to come and chant and reverse the curse? No, that's germs, it's bacteria, it's a virus that causes sickness in the body. There's treatment for that. So, not a curse? Nope, not a curse. Religions of all kinds grew up in this gap between what was undeniable and what was explainable. Beyond that, religion also served as an attempt to answer the unanswerable questions. What kind of questions? Well... What happens when you die? Will I ever see my loved ones again? What's the purpose of life? Like, why is there anything at all? Why does anything exist at all? Those are big questions and they have big answers. And without real information, they are fertile soil for religion to come up and try to answer those questions. Because here's the truth about you and about me and about all humans since the beginning of time. We don't like the answer, nobody knows. Or, it's just a mystery. We don't like that. You go to a doctor and he examines your issue, and if he says to you, beats me, I have no idea. You don't laugh it off and go, I have no idea either. Isn't that funny? No, you don't do that. We don't like those answers. So, you go find a doctor that has some answers, hopefully one that has answers. 
Well, of course, first you have to call your insurance hotline to find the list of primary care doctors in your area now because your old doctors no longer can be your primary care doctor because he's part of the Choice Plus uh, sector and now he's part of the Choice Preferred sector and, and he's not seeing new patients and technically you're not a new patient, but really you are a new patient because of the new classification. The point is, we don't like the answer, nobody knows. We just don't like that. So you'll look for an answer, regardless of how weird it might be. Uh, you might tell your roommate, come home, say, well, I went to uh, see the doctor today, and he told, well, at least I think he was a doctor who was wearing a white coat. And he said, I need to drink a quart of beet juice every morning and chant to clear my aura. Well, we want an answer, no matter how weird. We'll take weird answers because we want answers. And I say all that to say this. Some of your, <laughs> some of your religious beliefs might be a little goofy because you might have dragged them along with you because you were facing some situation along the way and this sort of filled a gap. So we all, we're all susceptible to this to some degree that some part of our theology might be a little goofy. That's why Easter is such a non-religious thing. There's just nothing religious about it. Easter is not trying to explain the unexplainable. It's not trying to answer an unanswerable question. Matter of fact, when Easter took place, it happened at a time when first century Jewish people already had answers and explanations for stuff. They weren't looking for answers. Easter isn't about that. It's about something that happened. Now, Christianity, and you need to know this if you're exploring Christianity, we need to know this as we celebrate Easter. Christianity is not birthed in a movement around someone's teaching. It's not as answers to questions that people were asking, not as an explanation for something. None of that has to do with the birth of Christianity. It happened in a real place, at a real time, amongst real people. You can go there today and see where it took place. Now, the other thing that's so unusual about it is that no one was really expecting there to be a resurrection right then. When you read the account of Jesus' followers, um, here's what you don't find. You don't find that the group of believers, the followers of Jesus, all went out to the tomb early on that third day and they were holding hands around the tomb saying, 10, 9, 8, 7. No, the accounts of the, the resurrection of Jesus are really much more honest than that. They own up to reality. They basically say, after Jesus died, we lost it, man. We lost hope. We didn't know what to do. To the point that when they heard that the stone had been rolled away, which we now know is no casual endeavor, it's not like a local mom and her Girl Scout troop went and rolled it away. Once they found that the, the, the stone got rolled away, they went there, they looked into the tomb, saw that the body was gone, they went, huh, wonder what happened. <laughs> they were clueless. For some reason, they were clueless. Now, I get this to some degree. I'm a guy. We like to be right. We don't like to be wrong. And we like saving face. And you would think that these men would put on the strong men of faith act at this point in time. You think Peter would say, yes, I knew it. I knew there was going to be, I knew he's going to rise from the dead. You remember, James, the other night after dinner, I called it. I said, Gonzaga's going to win it all. And I said, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. You remember that? Remember that? We like to be right. Guys like to be right. But these guys fully admit they didn't expect it. They saw the empty tomb and they were confused. They were confused about it, but then they saw Jesus alive again, and everything changed. Everything changed. 
All of a sudden, these guys that were confused at best, shaken to the core at worst, they changed. I mean, before they were scared. They said, they crucified our leader. Now they're coming for us. But now they see him alive and everything is different. It's all changed. They become bold as lions. You know that if you read the book of Acts. They change. Here's what we need to know. Here's what you need to know as you investigate Christianity. Here's what we need to know as we celebrate Easter. The message centered not on the teachings of Jesus, not on the moral example of Jesus, not even on the miracles of Jesus. The message centered on the resurrection of Jesus, and they would not shut up about it. And the reason Christianity exploded out of Jerusalem and onto the Mediterranean world in the first century is not because of the teachings of Jesus, it's because of what he did three days after they killed him and put him into a grave. That's the reason. Now we're going to read a short story out of the book of Acts. Acts is the account of the followers of Jesus and what they did in the days, months, and years that followed this epic event that we refer to as the resurrection. And this story focuses in on Peter and John, former fishermen and close followers of Jesus. Now look at the detail of this account. Acts is written by Luke, uh, who is a follower of Jesus and a close friend of Peter's. Uh, matter of fact, even to this day, Luke is, is esteemed as a historian of the highest order. That's, that's another historian quoting um, what he has to say about uh, the gospel writer Luke. says it's impeccable um, his, history there. All right, here's what he writes. Acts chapter 3, we'll begin. Verse 1. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Now this gate called Beautiful is a very specific and very real place. It's not made up. It's not Oz. It's not Neverland. It's not fairy tale. Everyone knew exactly where it was, and they knew exactly who this guy was that sat there crippled every day begging for money. Here's what it says in verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. People don't give attention to beggars unless they're going to give something to them. I mean, honestly, when you want to ignore a panhandler, you just look straight ahead, don't you? You don't make eye contact, you just pretend that he's not there. You don't engage them in conversation and then say, you know, it must really suck to be you. Good luck with all that, you know? You don't do that. You, you just keep looking straight ahead. Verse 6, then Peter says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now, saying the name Jesus of Nazareth out loud would get the attention of lots of people walking by, which there would be lots of people walking by at the time of prayer right in front of the temple. People would be thinking, Jesus, that's the guy they crucified. There was a lot of thunder and noise that day, and we've been hearing a lot of rumors about this guy over the last couple of weeks. See, this is in the same neighborhood that the crucifixion took place. It's walking, it's right in the same neighborhood, it's right down the road from where the crucifixion took place. All right, verse 7. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. 
Jumping and praising was unusual in the temple courts at the time of prayer. And now it's starting to get everybody's attention. Verse 9, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They're saying, wait, that's the guy. That's the crippled guy right there that sits out there every day. Now he's walking. Now verse 11, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. That's a real historical place. Again, it's not made up. You can look that up historically. All right, when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Now, Peter reaches back right then, and he refers to what this Jewish crowd knows here in verse 13. And we've talked about this all in one story up until now. He says, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, us, all of us, has glorified his servant Jesus, he says. In other words, this is the God you already know about. This is God. We're not making up a new religion here. Jesus is Lord. He's son of the God that you already know, that you have sacrificed to and learned all about right in this temple behind me. This is the God that you know. And right in that moment, Peter could have said a hundred things about Jesus that all would have been true. Could have said, this is the Jesus who taught us to pray. Remember when he said, our Father who art in heaven. He could have said, Jesus is the one who told us to love one another, or it's better to give than to receive, and how important it is to love our neighbor. Peter could have said a hundred true things about Jesus, but he zeroes in on the one thing, on the one thing that matters right here. The one thing that changed everything, the resurrection. And then he, he kind of shifts gears here, and he kind of moves into how to, the, how to win friends and influence people part of the speech. <laughs> And he points, he's, he levels his eyes at the, at the religious leaders and he says, you handed him over to be killed. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. He says, we are witnesses of this. Peter and John were saying, we don't just believe something, we saw something. We saw something. We're not just followers of Jesus. We are witnesses of his resurrection from the dead. We saw him die. We saw him get put in, his corpse put into that tomb and we saw it sealed. And now we've seen him alive again, along with 500 other people. And we will never be the same. These guys were not trying to explain the unexplainable. <laughs> they weren't trying to start a new religion. Matter of fact, they connect him back to the God that these people have known they've been worshiping for millennia. All right, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed <laughs> that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus... There is a resurrection of the dead. Peter and John and all the others that saw it would not shut up about this resurrection deal. All right, verse 3. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, 
put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. 5,000. So why did Christianity erupt and get catapulted out of the first century? It wasn't because of the teachings of Jesus, which were great. It weren't because of the miracles of Jesus, which were astounding. It was because of the resurrection of Jesus. Hundreds of people saw him die, many of whom were responsible for his death. Then they saw him alive. Peter and John and all the others would not shut up about it, and now thousands and thousands and thousands of people are becoming believers. Now the story goes on, verse 5. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. Again, these are historical figures. You can look them up. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, listen to these words, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Say it again. By what power or in whose name have you done this? That's like putting a ball on a tee for Peter. (laughs) And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? In other words, is this really about a random act of kindness? Or are we being questioned today because this is all about the resurrection of the dead that we won't shut up about? He says, you want to know how he was healed? This is how he goes on. You want to know how he's healed? I'm really glad you asked. <laughs> Let me clearly state to you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man, again, you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And all the religious leaders are going, shh, would you stop talking about this resurrection already? Verse 12, Peter just lowers the boom on these guys. Listen to these words. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Beautiful words. They are beautiful words. But they are words that can bug non-Christians. Oh, that bugs them. They say, no other name, no other name, really? That is narrow and judgmental. And I get it. It does sound narrow. Let me just say two things about this issue that might help. Here's the first. very first is, think about these words. No other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Let me ask. Who else has predicted their death and their resurrection and pulled it off? They're saying, no one's ever done this before. You give us a list of all the people who have predicted their death, predicted their resurrection and pulled it off, well, we'll put them on the worship list too, okay? Here's the second thing. We miss the point when we get offended by this no other name issue. We miss it. Or very least, we, we bury the lead. Because the real point is not that there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, but that there is a name by which we can be saved. That's the point. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Even though we've all blown it, we've sinned and we've fallen so far short of God's perfection, God still accepts us and he forgives us because of what Jesus did. He paid our price. He paid for our sin. And all he asks that is that we believe and receive it from him. 
by faith. I mean, would we really say, well, I don't want to receive the way that you've provided for forgiveness and salvation. If you don't order, give us multiple ways, then I don't want any way at all. That's the epitome of narrow-mindedness right there. The good news is there is a way for us to have peace with God and forgiveness and eternal life with Jesus. All right, let's look how the story ends here. In verse 13, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. It was evident, it was evident to everyone who was watching that the risen Savior had changed these men's lives. You know what? The risen Savior is still changing lives today. He's changed me changed a whole bunch of you. You're not like you used to be. I know that. It's not about religion, friends. It's about an amazing thing that happened in a real place at a real time amongst real people. And what's neat about this is the message that those guys spoke just days after the resurrection is the same message we speak today. The invitation then is the same invitation now. Receive what the risen Savior Jesus offers you forgiveness and new life in him there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but thank god there is a name by which we can be saved it is jesus the one who was dead but is alive forevermore and i want to be with him i want you to bow your heads and we'll pray Lord, we're grateful for the message of Easter. That it's not based on the teaching of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus or the great life of Jesus. It is on the resurrection of Jesus. Him overcoming death, the penalty for our sin. He kicked death to the curb and gives us new life in him. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the truth of the resurrection. Thank you for the historical reality of the resurrection, Lord. And God, I pray that you, would, that you would plant this and etch this on our soul that we might never forget it, Lord. That our beliefs are anchored in real history. It really happened. It's not fairy tale. It's not Oz, it's not Neverland, it's real. So God, we anchor our faith in you and in the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who was dead, but is now alive forevermore. We thank you for the offer of new life in him and we receive it, Lord, by faith. We accept your way, your forgiveness, your cleansing power, your new life in him. And we thank you for it, Lord. And we glorify you and we will spend the rest of our days in gratitude to you for what you've done. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.